0: Welcome to this week's podcast from Suncoast Church. We hope that this message inspires you and helps you grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. We hope you enjoy this message. Here's the thing, one day you and I are going to get to the end of our lives. And who knows when that might be, but very likely you will ask a question that maybe you've thought about, maybe you've started thinking about in this series, or maybe this is the first time you're ever even going to think to ask this question, but it's very likely we'll get to the end of our lives and ask the question, did I make it count? Did I make my life count? Or did I just see the days get counted away and spend it and spend everything I had and spent my gifts and spent my resource and spent my time? Or did I ultimately make it count. And that's kind of the question that this series has kind of been proding and asking. And this past week, I came across a, uh, you might have seen it on the news this week, of an elderly gentleman who's in his late 80s, and he completed the Kokoda trial, and he's now officially the eldest person to have ever completed the Kokoda Trail, the hike. I don't know if anyone saw that story this week. Pretty amazing stuff. And I had a few mates who recently just did the Kokoda Trail, and they were in their 20s and 30s, and they were whinging the whole way, and they were posting selfies, oh, my life, and all these things, right? Just, just having a horrible time of it. And I saw this, this interview with this uh, this older gentleman, well into retirement, and just absolutely smashed it. I was like, what a hero. And then the story went on to say something that I wasn't expecting. Then goes on to explain that he's legally blind, I was like, so no only did he do it as the eldest person in history. Uh, And he was doing it in remembrance of his father. His father was uh, lied about his age. He snuck on into the army at 16. And uh, so he fought on the Kokoda Trail. But he did it blind. I thought that was absolutely amazing. And now, but here's what really brought it home for me about this gentleman making his life count for something. The reason I stumbled across this news uh, program on his life was a friend of mine uh, shared it on one of his social media streams on his page. And he wrote it with the blurb saying, "This is the man." And my friend had been has been in ministry now for about ten years, travels the world teaching on apologetics, so helping people that have, um, I guess, real philosophical and rational based questions and how does that align with faith? And he helps to answer some of the really really prickly questions. And so he started in that line of ministry about ten years ago, and he uh, posted this video of this elderly gentleman who already done something incredible, but said, "This is the man." Who, when I started out in ministry, encouraged me more than anyone else and taught me how to pray. And when I looked at that, that here's this guy not only achieving great things, they can just look at him on the surface saying, man, he's making his life count in retirement. But the fact that he is, and and not only obviously stretching himself, the training required that is amazing, but he's still giving of himself to the next generation and to other people. And I see that. And when we hear stories like this man going, whoa, they are really learning. Like they know what it is to make it count. And we can see stories like that and go, geez, am I making it count? Am I living my life like that? Now you you might not be interested at all in like hiking Kokoda, right? And you might not know even where to begin teaching someone how to pray that's going into full-time ministry. But you have your life. And you are responsible for whether you make it count. So whether, you know, you've been somebody who's been following Jesus a long time, whether this is your first time in church, maybe you're viewing online today, and you just, you've somehow come across our stream, wherever it is, you have a life and you get the chance to be intentional with the life you've got. So you might not be at the end of your life asking, you know, did I make it count? But here's the question I want us to ask today as we delve into week number five of this series. Is right now in your life, here's the question. And the question is this, what am I counting? And if you think about your life and your commitments, your responsibilities, the stuff you have, the resources you have, what are we counting? And you don't need me to tell you this. This is widely known, but at the end of our life, we can't take anything with us. When we die, that's it. Our time on, on this side of eternity, it's done. You can't take your possession. You can't take your stuff. You can't take your money. And so it's worth asking, while I've got stuff, what is it? That I am counting. And I'm really challenged by this question. I'm often challenged when I walk into a room or a different environment and I look around. Well, what is it that you and I tend to count the most? And you've got to kind of personalize this. And I can kind of only I can't speak on behalf of you, but I can speak on behalf of my life. Being a pastor when I you know walk into a room or someone finds out what I do for a living. And I try and hide that as much as I can because the moment I say I'm a pastor, you know, instantly you're thinking what you're thinking right now. And so it's always a fun or not fun conversation, right? But often people, when they find I'm a pastor, one of the questions that come up regularly is, how many people go to your church? And I'm like, great, because it's like, okay, we're going to do some measuring thing around, but how many people, you know, sit on a chair on a given Sunday, whatever it might be, right? And that's one way. And I'm like, if that's what you count, so be it. But for what, what we've decided to do in this community, what we, sure you count attendance and at different events and groups and all the different things we do, but that's not ultimately what we count. What we count or what we value, what we treasure the most are stories of changed lives. And for us, that's what we recognize. It's not how many people sit somewhere, it's how many people are making a difference somewhere. It's not how people come in, it's how many people go out. And so many people are listening or watching, but it's how many people are investing and sewing, and how many people are changing. What you count says so much about what you treasure. I know Chloe just said before, if you didn't hear it, on Friday night, this is amazing. Uh, And again, I I think it's funny when we give things only a half-baked clap at times. There were 350 high schoolers at our youth ministry on a Friday night. And the reason that's amazing, right? Just to get 350 high schoolers in a building for anything is an extraordinary ability these days because if they're not in front of a screen or doing something. But these are kids who are getting their lives changed by the message of Jesus Christ. And here's the deal. There's a whole bunch of young adults who volunteer their time up to six hours on a Friday afternoon for about 45 weeks of the year. And if you're a parent of a teenager, you are grateful that you get your Friday night off because these, these young adults are volunteering for it. But I'm telling you, they're not volunteering just so they can herd a cattle and big massive group of teenagers for a few hours, right? They've got better things to do than that. They're doing it because they believe in making their young adult years count and they want to invest into the next generation and in a world that all we hear is bad stories about teenagers, that teenagers' lives are falling apart and teenagers are slight on humanity. humanity. This next generation is broken, all these things. There are all these young adults who saying, we believe in the next generation and we want to make our Friday nights count for something. And so it's one thing to say there are 350 bums on a seat. It's another thing to say there are 350 lives who are being changed, who are pushing against the tide of culture and who want to make a difference with the time they've been given. So my question is to you, in your life and wanting to make your life count, because I'm assuming we all do, what is it that you are counting? Because what we count shows what you and I truly Treasure, And I want to encourage you today is to not spend your life on things that can be counted, but don't really count. And your life is too valuable and your life is too important. And what your heavenly Father has given you to do and to be with your life really does count. I came across a story recently. It's uh, written by a Spanish author. And it's about a young mom who had a son and her son was born blind. And she didn't want her son growing up knowing that uh, he had anything wrong with him. And so um, she, in all of kind of his influencing community or their friends and family, she kind of set a rule that no one was to use any words that would let her son know that he couldn't see. So they banned words like sight, uh, eyes, vision, view, colour, light, like just banned it all. So he would kind of grow up blissfully aware that there was nothing wrong with him. Now, if you're a parent here, you can kind of, you know, sympathise with the mum going, I see what she's doing there, right? She didn't want a kid feeling like he's lacking or missing something. So several years went on this where he just had no clue that he couldn't see because he didn't know seeing was even a thing. There was no word to describe something he didn't have. So he didn't know he didn't have it. One day, there was a girl who came into the house next door. She kicked the ball over the fence and so she ran over the fence to get it as the story goes. And she sees this young boy playing in the backyard. And this young girl then obviously shattered this young boy's whole worldview, was using all the forbidden words that should never have been used. And all of a sudden now, this young boy, he'd been living blissfully unaware, was like hearing about these words called sight and vision and light and colour and just stuff he didn't know. Now, I say that story to say, well, we're going to share on today about looking at the Christian worldview of what it means to live a life that counts or how the follower of Jesus or what they should be counting in our lives, often the Christian worldview of what counts can seem like as much as an intrusion to life as this young girl coming into this young blind boy's life and spoiling this kind of bubble that he'd been living in. Often the Christian worldview of stuff and of things and of life isn't always a welcome uh, a welcome invitation. Sometimes it's met with like, well, you have just completely ruined my worldview or I? Understanding of life, right? So it's worth knowing that, and particularly if you're someone who's not normally in church or maybe you're not even settled yet on the whole Christian thing, you're not sure where you stand with God, even if there is a God, you definitely might see that those who have a faith or those who particularly are followers of Jesus, that for them, our worldview has shrunk, that it's like we've closed our eyes off to reality and that we're blind to what's really going on. Which you have to understand, to a follower of Jesus, it's actually the opposite. We feel as though our eyes have been open, that all of a sudden life is more than just what you can count. Life is more than just stuff and things and flesh and blood and bones and clothing, that life is so much more than that. And there is more to life than just this life. And so, and so it'd be easy to think sometimes that Christianity, it's a, it's a squasher of our desires and it's an impediment to pleasure and our desires in life. But the truth is, it's not that whatsoever. What well, you'll find is Christianity is more so about forming and ordering of our desires. So Christianity doesn't remove them. Christianity isn't about, oh, you have these desires and wants and needs and they're evil and they're, they're base, don't have. No, no, no. God is, God has given you amazing desires and amazing pleasures and things that we, uh, you know, hunger and thirst after and things that we want in our life. What following Jesus does, it puts those desires and it puts those pleasures in their right place. Because if you've ever seen a desire that has become dysfunctional in your life, you know how much it can control your life, right? You know, if if you drink alcohol, you know alcohol is a blessing until it's not, right? And it's many things in life that are a blessing until they're not. What Christianity does, it takes our desires and our pleasures and our drives and it puts them in their right place so they don't control your life, but rather you can have mastery over them because you know there's only one master in your life and that would be Jesus, right? So this is kind of the, 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 the way that Christianity works in this regard. So what I want to talk about today, at first it might seem like this is the most frustrating and annoying thing, but what you realise, it's an ordering of our desires, and it's an ordering of our pleasure, and it's an ordering of our wants. So I want to put a question to you, and this is like, I need feedback now, so this is a chance for you to yell back at me and to talk, okay? And if you're online, you can like type it and like, you know, you can um, troll our Facebook page there and add your comments. Um, But what do you think is the thing that all of us as people desire above all else? What do you think it is? Love. Food. Food. Who's with Stephen on food? (laughs) What was that at the back? Companionship. 100%. What else? Security. Definitely. Running. Running. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 100 million. I'm assuming that's dollars. Yeah, who wouldn't mind 100 million dollars in life? Right. So here's the thing. I did the research. I discovered what human beings desire above. You ready for this? What they desire above all. Who's ready for this? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, two people. I'm going to tell you anyway. Right. All right. Here's the thing. We desire above all else. More. Come on. Isn't that true? How much is enough? More. Right, we love joy, but we could always we always desire I want more. We love peace, we want more of it. We love we love money and a million dollars is great, but how good would a hundred million dollars be, you know? So there is this desire inside of all of us for more. That really rhymes. I didn't even intend that to rhyme, but there you go, it rhymes. Okay. So inside of us all there is this there is urge, of this drive for more wealth, more freedom, more joy, pleasure, for more stuff, for more things. But here's the trap. And, and again, you don't need me to tell you this, you, you're smart, right? You've lived life. But I mean, if you have lived life longer than me, so you know, you know this more than I do. That often the emptiness that people can tend to feel in life, or if we talk in, in terms of this series about, do, am I, is my life counting for something? Does my life, you know, is, is, am I doing something worthwhile with my life? Has my life amounted to something worth celebrating or does it, does it count? And if you ever felt on the negative end of that, that my, man, my life, my life is just not counting. Often people experience that degree of emptiness far more intense in their successes than they ever have in their failures. And as, much as, as peculiar as that sounds, the reason this is proven true over and over again is because when you fail at something or you lose at something, you only have one way to go. It's up. But if you're the top, if you're the most successful, if you're the most famous, if you're the most rich, if you've got the most of the more, whatever success is defined, you know, defined by you, If you've got it all and you get there and go, that all this feels like, the emptiness that someone experienced in that is radical. And you know, we see this all the time, right? If you ever checked out a magazine and you watch certain television programs, you see a story and a story of the people whose names that are so familiar to us, who seem to have everything that our culture chases. They have all the money, they have all the stuff, they have all the power, they have all the notoriety, they have all the success. One of the things I've found so peculiar, just peculiar to me, is why people who seem to have as much of the more as you could ever desire, why they need to keep numbing their sensation for life. I find it fascinating to see someone who has all the stuff that everyone chases, but yet when they get all the stuff, they still need to numb their feeling. They turn to to some form of substance abuse or something like that. And I go, why? But that's what the whole world's chasing. Why do you need to numb what it feels like to be alive if that's what we're chasing? Because they recognize something that our stuff, more stuff, more things, more experiences simply getting more things does not equate to a life that Counts That getting more what can be counted doesn't mean the necessarily things that count. Now, every generation has someone who has the most, right? We're talking about getting more. Every generation has someone who's at the top of the food chain, who has more than anyone else, who's successful more than anyone else. 3,000 years ago, that person on planet Earth with a, a historical figure known as King Solomon. And King Solomon was the third King of Israel. He was the son of the famed King David. And uh, the, guy, the guy had it had it. All. in fact, he had, he had it so much, he had so much silver, get this, he had so much silver that um, it, the Bible says it became so, silver became so common in Jerusalem, the city where he ruled, that it devalued their currency for a whole generation. They said silver was as common as rocks. Okay, so can you imagine, I'm wealthy, what have you got? Rocks, you know, that's how, that's how rich and how much stuff this guy had. And what I want to read is something he wrote at the end of his life. He wrote a book called Ecclesiastes and kind of just poured out his lament as he got to the end of his life asking you know, what did I count? Or has my life counted? And when we read this, you're probably gonna have the same reaction to me where it's like, no, 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 no. Surely this isn't true. Surely this isn't true. I'll be different. If I had everything he had, if I had more, if I had it all, I won't despair like he's about to despair. But the truth is you and I both know that what he says here, it, it, just, it just rings true to all of our ears. So we read this in the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is how Solomon writes at the end of his life. He said, I wanted to see what was good For people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. So I undertook great projects. Who are the project people who love to do projects? You like? Okay, good on you. So, So I undertook. He's, Solomon's your guy, right? I undertook great project. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I even made reservoirs to water grow the flourishing trees. Now we're all the green thumbs here who love doing their gardens, right? Hey, Solomon's your kind of king. He's a guy he, and he did it all. He had all these big projects. If you're renovating your house, if you're building a house, Solomon's your guy, right? He, he, he did it all, he did it all. It goes on. Not only did he do it all, he bought it all. He said, I bought male and female slaves and I had other slaves who were born in my house. I owned more herds. How much? More. (laughs) I owned more herds and more flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. A harem. This guy not only had... um, 700 wives, it was had 300 concubines. So when he's saying harem there, he's really downplaying it. But he sums it up by saying, the last sentence, if we go back, he says, it was all the delights of a man's heart. The guy had the money and the means to get and pay for whatever he wanted. And it goes on. He said, I became greater, I meaning his reputation, his notoriety, his power, his position. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So the guy, the guy had the gift of wisdom. So it's not like he's losing his mind here. He was trying to be wise, okay? He said, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. Anything, anything you've ever desired or wanted. He tried it. He tried it all. He said, anything my eyes wanted, i I went went for it, I refused my heart, no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labour and this was the reward for all my toil. Okay, so he experienced everything, he tried everything, he bought everything, he experienced it all and then this is how he concludes. He said, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything, say this word with me, everything was meaningless. Now again, don't tell us that Solomon, please tell us that the view from the top is awesome. Right? When you get it all, when I've got all my stuff, surely that's what counts. Stolen's saying, I got it all, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news. The view from the top stinks. He said it was meaningless. And he uses this term here. He says it was a chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to chase after the wind? You can't get it, right? (laughs) He says nothing was gained. Now, again, we're probably thinking and going, oh, don't tell me that, John. Again, this is like, remember we said at the beginning, often the, the Christian view of what counts can seem like an impediment, but stay with me for a moment, okay? What Solomon's trying to say here is that accumulating stuff that you can count wasn't the secret to a life that counts. Let me say that again. Can we throw that, can we throw that up there? Accumulating stuff that you can count is what Solomon's saying. It's not the secret to a life that counts. Now, again, again, if it doesn't matter to you, like I'm giving you, you can, you can buy it, you can kind of opt out here. If getting to the end of your life and not looking back and saying, my life counted, if that's not important to you, that's not valuable to you, again, you, you can opt out. But if it is important to you, Solomon would send a warning from 3,000 years in the past and say this, it's getting more stuff, more positions, more. Now, they're not wrong, right? He's not saying these are evil in of themselves, but he's saying this, they aren't what truly counts. Yeah. So it begs the question, what does? What truly counts? What should we be counting? And the next words we're going to read from King Solomon here, we're not sure if he wrote these before the passage you just read or after it, but nonetheless, he wrote these, these words and obviously a better date, but he gives, us, he gives us a little insight to his take on someone who had it all, who experienced more and got more and got it all. And here's what he would say accumulates to a life that truly counts. This is in the book of Proverbs. So yeah, again, he just, he's spitting off wisdom here. He's spitting off ideas. This is what he said in Proverbs 3. He said, here's what you got to do. Honour God with your wealth and with the first fruits, not not your leftovers, not the crumbs, not with after I've spent, after I've bought, after I've acquired, after I've experienced. He goes, don't do that first. Don't do that first. Honour God first with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your increase. He's saying this, give first. Before you do anything else, he's not saying don't do anything else, but he said before all of that, before you find your, your life caught in stuff that you can count, he goes, do what truly counts. Honor God first with your wealth, with the first fruit of your increase. And then he says something here. Again, this is an analogy, okay? Because not everyone owns barns and not everyone has vats of wine, even though some of you might wish you had vats of wines and own barns. But he's given an analogy. He says, Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. So here's the thing. Because Solomon recognized, remember this Solomon had full barns, Solomon had vats that were overflowing, but they were meaningless to him right? So he's saying it's not what you got that counts, right? You can have it all, you cannot have it all. But he recognizes when something happens, when you, when you learn to prioritize giving, and in other words, being generous with your life, stay with me. He's saying something happens on the inside of you. You begin to look at what you've got and you look at it. And rather than seeing your barns being emptier and emptier and emptier, you conclude, my barns, are filled to overflowing and you look at your vats in your life and you're like, man, they are brimming with new wine. He's saying something changes about how you see what you've got. And when you learn to be someone that prioritises giving, remember, this is what Solomon's saying. He had it all, he bought it all, he spent it all, and with it all, he said, came nothing. But he changed his tune. He said, if you learn to give first, it changes the way you see everything. And why is that? Because when we prioritize giving, our things don't change. Our stuff doesn't change. Maybe your socioeconomic status doesn't change, but something does change. Something in us changes. And this is what Solomon is saying. He's, not, he's saying, look, I didn't get poorer or I didn't get richer. He goes, when I learned this principle of giving first, of being generous, something in me changed. I became different. I grew. Instead of looking at the cup, you know, half empty, I saw it as half full, and my whole view changed of the world. So when, I, when we change, when something inside of us changes, it's not that our stuff changes, but how we value our stuff certainly does. This, this like hit home like a truck to the face several years ago. That was really graphic, but to, uh, to my wife and I, um, we're about a year into our marriage. We're living overseas. And again, if you've been here around, you've probably heard us share this story before, but I love sharing it again because it's this principle became more than just you know, words on a page. It became real to us in this moment. And we're both working jobs in London. And if you've ever been to London or worked in London, like it's, you know, it's expensive and the jobs don't always pay. Heat's awesome. And so we were working through our life and our budgeting. And you know, we'd practice kind of the give first thing for a long time in our lives. We we're doing it, but things were getting tight. And we found ourselves getting worried more. We started to find ourselves getting anxious more. We started finding ourselves being fearful of our future and fearful of what we got. And so we started, instead of kind of doing this with our hands, we started kind of doing this with our hands. And we started having questions that I never thought I'd ever have. We started having conversations we never thought we'd had. We started going, hey, maybe we need to put the giving thing on hold for a little bit in our life because we just don't have much margin. we have never toyed with that before. So we started thinking about it and looking at what that would mean and really asking honest questions like, do we really believe this, this principle? About, about being generous with our lives. Generosity simply means to prioritise giving before all else, before you spend, before you hoard, before you save, give first. That's the definition of generosity. And so we're talking about this and it all came to a head. And one day, one cold, rainy, miserable day on the streets of London when um, we were getting on a bus and um, something happened with our fare and we were charged an extra like two pound. And uh, I, lost, I lost it. I lost my cool. Um, and I freaked out, clothes there with me. And in that moment I went, Whoa, hang on a sec. I'm I'm losing my mind. I've lost my peace. I've lost my joy over two pounds. And to be fair, it's like two pounds, which is the equivalent to about 758 Australian dollars, right? So so but I was at like, something's wrong here in me. And so we got home and we and we I will never forget this moment. We looked at each other and we prayed and we're like, nah, we're gonna we're gonna not only believe this, we're gonna keep giving. We're going to keep prioritizing giving. We're going to go beyond that. We're going to give more because we refuse to let our money and our stuff and our things have control over who we were and to dictate our joy and to dictate our peace and to dictate whether or not we could be generous with our life and to live lives that truly counts. So we said, we're going to go beyond this. We're going to give beyond our comfort zone and we're going to give above that beyond an extra. And you will not guess what happened after we started doing this. It was absolutely amazing. Guess what happened with our jobs and our income? Nothing. But guess what happened to us? Everything. Because something inside of us radically changed where all of a sudden we realized, man, we have been looking at simply the, our stuff as lack, comparison, we don't have what we got, we don't have enough and all these things. The moment we we kind of, I guess dug deeper into this idea of giving first and, and looking at life through a generous eye. And we'll get to that in just a moment. We realized we changed so radically that the stuff we were fearful about previously, we now, we now became grateful over, right? And make no mistake about it. Again, you know this because you've heard this, you've read this on Twitter or seen a song about it or something, right? How easy it is that we, we get so focused on the things we don't have and we undervalue the things that we do have. But Solomon was trying to say, hey, 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 the true fulfillment and that sense of avoiding emptiness or meaningless as, as Solomon put it, he said, this is found in learning to be generous. And he realized it wasn't a matter of our stuff or getting more things. It was a matter of things. It was a matter of what was happening on the inside of us. Now, Jesus spoke right into this. And Jesus referred to what was happening when it comes to how we deal with our staff and with our things and with wealth. He refers to this as a battle that's going on in our hearts. And he refers to hearts, the so kind of inside part of you, the most real part of you. And here's how Jesus writes, uh, talks about it. This is in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, listen, don't store up for yourselves treasures where? Say it with me. On earth, right? So stuff, right? Don't value and treasure stuff that highly. Because moth will eat it. Anyone had a shirt or good, you know, your wedding dress lost the moth before? Awesome. Okay. Or vermin destroyed. And where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures where? Say it with me. In heaven. So he's saying, come on, learn to look, learn to value life from heaven's perspective. You learn to To look at things that are truly treasure, he said, "Store for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and vermin don't destroy, and where thieves do not break in." And he concludes by saying this: "For where your treasure is, the things that you truly count, the things that you truly value, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." Now Jesus didn't mince words here. Jesus, Jesus went straight to the heart of it. He he warned us against treasuring stuff. He says, because if you're treasuring stuff, if you look at your wealth and your money and your things, if they are your treasure, right? He says, you are essentially valuing things that ultimately one day won't last. If you are valuing the things that you can count, He says, you are valuing the wrong stuff. And Jesus understood here that our stuff or how we interact with our things and what we truly treasure in life, it's not simply a matter of budgeting and margin in our life. He said, this is an issue of the heart. And he's, ultimately he's arguing this, that what you and I count, what you and I value, what you and I treasure has a direct impact on our hearts. Now, think, just think of the enormity of what Jesus is suggesting here. He's saying, ultimately, what you count in life, this is having a direct, this has a direct correlation in what is happening on the inside of your life. And so if you're waiting, you're thinking, okay, my life will finally know peace when I get more My life will finally know joy when I get more. I will finally feel like my life counts when I achieve more. And Jesus said, "It's not that. It's not about getting more stuff." He says, "What you're really after is a change on the inside of your life, and that's exactly where faith in Jesus works best." And Jesus is trying to teach you that what we count has a direct, a direct impact on what's happening inside of our hearts. And likely for us, Jesus goes on to give a picture about how this actually works. And it's fascinating. So the very next verse, this is how he teaches it. He says, the eye, and keep in mind, this is an analogy. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So you got your body, you got a lamp, they're your eyes. Are you with me? He says, if your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness just think of what Jesus is, the picture he's trying to paint here. Remember, Jesus is teaching an agricultural society, Jewish society, 2,000 years ago. So painting pictures like this were really important. And the idea of a generous eye or stingy eye was language that was commonly used in Israel 2,000 years ago. So Jesus is using this analogy and he's saying, here's the thing. He goes, if you have a generous eye or if you have a stingy eye, he's saying it has huge implications on your entire life. He said, if you're Eyes are generous, he says your whole body will be filled of light. That if your eyes are stingy, it'll be full of darkness. So your life is going to be full of something. And he said that the drawing line between what fills your life is whether you approach it with generous eyes or a stingy eye. You can't miss it. This is huge, right? Some of you are gonna be really, really helped with this. He's saying the reason why you might feel like things in your life are dying, or some things in your life feel just dark and meaningless, and that they don't count. Jesus would argue, again, these are Jesus' words. He's saying, if you have a generous eye, your whole life will be full of light. Honestly, you have to see this because this goes so much deeper than money. This is so much more than just cash, right? Jesus, Jesus is talking about the whole way you approach your life. He said, if you have a generous eye or a stingy eye, it has huge implications, not just on your finance, on the bottom line, but he said it has huge implications on your life. Because here's the thing, a generous eye will always see plenty. A generous eye will always see opportunity. I mean, you can tell, you can tell whether you're going in with a generous or a stingy eye, right? You you can usually self-identify this. Could you walk into an environment or you walk into a room and you'll easily point out everything that's wrong with it, why things don't work good, how like this is horrible and you criticise everything. But if you go into an environment or to a community with a generous eye, you start seeing what's right about it and what's working well. But more than that, you start seeing, man, I can contribute to this. I have something to offer here, right? There is opportunity. Coming out of these walls everywhere, a generous eye looks at everything differently. And Jesus, the best way he could paint this picture is simply saying this a generous eye will fill your whole life with light, or a stingy eye will fill your whole life with darkness. And all you see is everything that's wrong, and everything's half full, and there's not enough, and I'll never have a chance here. And when's it my turn? Are you seeing this picture with me, right? No, okay, great. So if you don't believe me, I'm going to. Right now, swing to someone who knows far more than me. An amazing author known as Philip Yancey. And if you've read any any of his stuff, he's amazing. He's much smarter than me. He's an investigative journalist. He came to faith in Jesus during his college years in America, in um, Chicago. And so finding Jesus really uh, was a huge conflict for him because, you know, he was like the story I shared at the beginning. He was the boy who, he's the boy who was blind. And all of a sudden Christianity came in and told him, you know, there's more. And he's like, oh no, you busted my little bubble. Great. So he really wrestled with this and he penned a lot of his struggle and tensions with his faith in a book known as Skeptic's Guide to Faith. And so if you're someone here that's uh, there, if you feel like, yeah, I'm a skeptic when it comes to faith, 100%, not just reading this, there's so many great books out there, but this one's been really, really helpful for me and working through a lot of my questions. But he got to a point in his life where one of the big, I guess, um, tension points for his faith was when it came to his stuff and learning to view his wealth and learning to view his money and learning to view his resources in view of God. Because previously he didn't have to. He just view it according to the value that the world put on currency. And the next minute God comes into his life and he's like, this is doing my head in. So he writes about it. And it was honest. And he said how he struggled and fought the grip of money or what Jesus referred to as Memon, which is the spirit behind greed. He said he struggled and fought the grip of money his entire life life. And don't miss this. This is so powerful. Because he said, when he was poor, it, it, it revealed its head in envy. And he struggled with envy. He said, then when he got wealthy and he made hits of money, he was writing all these you know, Christian books and got rich. He said, the same grip, the same battle reared its head when he was rich, but it reared its head as greed. So when he was poor, he was envious. When he was rich, he was greedy. And he recognised the tension and the struggle that Jesus was referring to, that there is always a battle for our hearts. It's always a battle for our hearts. There's always gonna be a battle for what has your heart's allegiance or your commitment or your faithfulness. There's always a battle for it. And he recognised this tension in him. And one day it all came to a head in his life when there was a rich young man in the city of Chicago who was a well-known gambler, very, very wealthy, and he died tragically young. But for his funeral, he decked out his coffin or his family decked out the coffin like like an expensive Cadillac, like full-on gave it mag wheels. They buffed it out, all these things. And even as he was laying there with the open casket, they had thousands of dollars of $500 cash notes in his hand gripping. And he literally went into the ground with money in his hands. And he saw the bizarre spectacle that was. He goes, he's not taken any of that stuff where he's gone. Like, he can't take it from this planet. Can't take it from this side of life. And he's saying, he saw that, And then he saw that report and then immediately became aware of one of the huge social issues that was in his city at the time. And that was the elderly who were very, very poor. And he saw this great divide. Could he had been in both things? He said he'd been in situations where he wasn't able to put heat on in his house. And now he's in this stage where he's got all this wealth and all this accumulation of funds more than he knew what to do with it. And in learning to view this, view what really counts according to heaven's perspective Here's the conclusion he came to. And he wrote, this is one of of the things he wrote in the book. He said, I needed to see money for what it is. It is a loan that God has entrusted to me for the purpose, for the purpose of investing into the kingdom of heaven, the only kingdom that pays eternal dividends. Right? So him and his wife decided we are just going to go head on into being generous people. And because he tapped into something that I think Jesus is trying to tap you and I all into. Because faith in Jesus doesn't just teach us to count or doesn't teach us to count what we have. Look at a God, I'm counting, I'm counting, how much do I have? Faith in Jesus doesn't do that. Faith in Jesus teaches us to make what we have count. Faith in Jesus doesn't teach us to count what we have, but it teaches us to make what we Have count. And make no mistake about it, make no mistake about it, the more you follow Jesus, the more it will invite light into your life. The more you follow Jesus, the more you will learn to have a generous. And what's incredible is the more you follow Jesus, the more you feel the tug of stuff on your heart and accumulating more things and things that you can count owning you, you'll feel its grip loosen and loosen and loosen and you'll feel your heart lean into what Jesus talked about, where you can truly live a life that counts and your whole body will be full of light. And maybe there's some areas in your life that if you are to be honest, just seem like they're filled with darkness. Maybe, come on, maybe even for you, it's it's home for you. Maybe you've got all the things, right? You've got all the stuff. you got the house, you got the car, you've got it all. But you feel like your relationships are just dark. I'm telling you, if you go into any relationship with a stingy eye, thing, what you can get out of it, what you can take, what you can accumulate from it, that relationship will get darker and darker and darker. But if you go into a relationship with a generous eye, going, what can I give into this? How can I invest into this? Where is the potential in this? You will find your relationship will get so full and full and full and full of light. Here's the thing, your life will be full of something, either a heap of darkness or a heap of light. And come on, Jesus would say, learn to look at life with generous eyes because it will fill your entire life with Light. And your life is so important to your Heavenly Father. and Your life is so valuable. And before you disregard that you can make your life count because maybe you don't have much stuff that can be counted. You learn to look at life through a generous eye. All of a sudden you look at what you do have and you will then ask the question, how can I make what I've got count? So here's the question I want to leave with you today is what parts of my life is the question I want us all to sort of take home. What parts of my life are still in darkness that generosity could light up? Ultimately, this is the way our Heavenly Father decided to light up our lives. He didn't ask anything from us. He said, I'm gonna give everything to you. And He gave us Himself. He gave us Jesus. And said, so the way that the humanity will be filled with light, I'm gonna give them the light of the world. And the moment you put your trust in Jesus, the grip of stuff and the grip of what the world values begins to lose its hold in your heart and you find your life becoming filled with light. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were encouraged by what you heard and inspired to grow in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more details, check out suncoast.org.au. Hope you can join us again on the next podcast or here at Suncoast Church.